If you have a Bible with you, open it, please, to John chapter 5. Excuse me, John chapter 6. You can open it to John chapter 5. Chapter 6 will be right there for you. Uh, we will be in, in John chapter 6 today. We come now to John chapter 6 because we have finished John chapter 5. And in John chapter 5, I think at the end of that, we could rightly summarize the entirety of the chapter and the idea that Jesus is our rest. He is our Sabbath rest. He is the the healing and the life that we need, which was supposed to come through the rest that God had promised to his people. So in him, we see the effects of the fall undone. In him, we have eternal life. In him, we have the healing not only of a man broken by the fallenness of the world, but a man who has promised so much more than that as we can skip out of judgment and condemnation and into eternal life because of the work of Jesus Christ among us. But then as we turn to John chapter 6, what we have is, is simply a different, another picture of what God has wrought in Jesus Christ. We get a, a different view of Jesus that is different than just saying that Jesus is our, our rest. It, it's sort of like having, having this picture of Jesus as a jewel. And as, as you look at jewels, the beauty of diamonds is not in static light but it is in the turning of the light. It is in the the changing of the light. It provides a myriad of colors. It's dynamic. It doesn't sit still. As jewels refract and diffuse light, they show their brilliance. And as we begin to see Jesus in other ways, not just as our rest, but in this case, as our provision, we see him all the more brilliantly for who he is. And so let us go then to John chapter 6. And read just the first 15 verses as we think through how Christ is our provision this morning. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread, so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not be enough to, would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost." So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of our God. As we go now to John chapter 6, let us set the scene for this great provision that God gives to us. 
This is one of the few miracles that are recorded in all four Gospels. John, as we have said from the very beginning, is writing in light of the other three Gospels. And I think that he is writing, having read the other three Gospels, and he is supplanting them, or not supplanting, but supplementing them. He is providing an interpretation of Jesus' life, another vision of Jesus' life that the first three don't fully picture. And specifically, because this is one of the few miracles that is recorded in all four Gospels, we are right to look at this and think that this is an incredibly important event in the life of Jesus. This tells us something very important about him. Indeed, as John is supplementing the other Gospels, we read of those accounts, of this same account in other Gospels, and we realize rightly that John is playing off of them. There's a couple of ways we can notice this. First, look at the word and the oddity of having the word signs as a plural in verse 2. This crowd up around Galilee was a large crowd, and they were following him because of the signs that he was doing on the sick. John records absolutely none of those signs. It seems like we should know that these signs were being done, but he doesn't tell us when Jesus was doing these signs, and he doesn't even say what the signs were. Indeed, the last sign that we had was the healing of the man who was lame by the pool in Bethsaida, but that was down in Jerusalem. This is all the way up in Galilee. John doesn't record any miracles done in Galilee. But both Matthew and Luke do record miracles being done in Galilee, and they record them directly before the event of the feeding of the 5,000. So in Matthew 14, 14, we read that Jesus went ashore and he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. So these people, when he got to the other shore, had followed him and they were bringing him their sick. And Jesus had been healing them. And so people spread the word that this man is here and he's healing our sick. And so all the more, people were bringing out their sick and bringing out their sick. And Jesus sees this great crowd coming to them. And he has compassion on them, not just to heal their sick, but to put food in their belly. Likewise, Mark has the interesting and important detail of 200 denarii in Mark 6:37. No doubt then, John knew that the other Gospels had already portrayed this particular feast, but he wants to turn this feast, he wants to turn this miracle into something that those other Gospels did not highlight. We can see something of this, something of this, by the one detail that he adds that they don't have. And that is that this was during the time of the Passover, the Feast of the Jews. Passover was an important thing. We shouldn't think that it's just here to give us some sort of historical illumination as to the events of the time. He's not trying to give you the time and the events that were going on around the world. It's not for historical curiosity that he gives us this. It's not that those things aren't historical, but John doesn't seem desiring at all to give us simple historical facts, to give us simple historical facts. When he provides facts like this, it is almost always for a good reason. What is the Passover? Well, the Passover was the celebration of the remembrance of God allowing the people of God to have their firstborn spared. So the 10th plague that was coming upon Egypt was a plague in which God was going to kill all of the firstborn in Egypt. And he looked at his people and he said, now I will do this, but you have a way out. I will provide for you a way out. You are to kill a lamb and you are going to eat that lamb that night. It will be a feast for you, but you are to take the blood of that lamb and you are to put it on the lentils and the doorposts so that when I come by and I see that blood, I will then pass 
over your house, and I will not kill all of your firstborn. All the firstborn of the nation of Egypt I will destroy, but not of yours. I will pass it over. There is provision there for them. And what's more, it's interesting that the feast is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It is the Passover, but they're not killing lambs here. What they're doing during the Feast of Unleavened Bread is remembering that they are to eat unleavened bread. They are to eat quick cooking bread. They are to do it because they have to be ready at any moment for God's salvation to appear. And when his provision of salvation comes, as it is about to, when he strikes the firstborn down, Pharaoh will send the people of Israel out. They have to be ready to go. So they are to eat it with a staff in their hand and sandals on their feet so that they are ready the moment their bags are packed and they can leave. Jesus does this miracle during this time because he is the provision of God. He is the one who comes to provide our need, to provide salvation for us, to provide us with food and water and drink. Jesus is here to be provision for us. So if Jesus is provision for us, what are we supposed to see from this particular passage? The first thing that you have to notice from this is that there is a great deficiency in humans. Notice first the deficiency of humans. This great crowd comes to Jesus because he's healing them. And when he sees this great crowd, he knows that they don't have much, if any, food with them. And so he has great amounts of compassion on them. And John mentions, although it's not mentioned in the other Gospels, that Jesus looks at Philip and he talks directly to Philip. Notice this. Jesus said to Philip in verse 5, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? It's an interesting footnote because Jesus knows and we know that Philip has come from this area of the country. And so he's asking somebody who's local, right? This would be like going to Louisville. You would ask me, because I spent so many years in Louisville, you would say, where do we go to get a good burger here? And I would have many, many answers for you. Friend, if you're in Louisville, come and talk to me. We'll get it, right? We know where to go. So because of that, Philip knows where to go to get the food. And so Jesus asks him, he says, listen, Jesus, I don't, I don't know if you realize this, but there's a lot of people here, man. We're, we're never going to have enough money to buy food for all these people. Now, a denarius was about one day's wage for somebody in that time. So if you were a day laborer, you could, you could get one day's worth of wages about a denarius, which means that 200 denarii was about two-thirds of a year's worth of salary for somebody. Now, what I'm about to do is not economically true, but it's a good rough estimation of what's going on. The U.S. average salary is $56,000. Now, that obviously depends on where you live, how much money that is. In Bay City, that might go a long ways, and it certainly goes further than it would in New York or in San Francisco. So it's not quite fair to do that, but nevertheless, let's take $56,000. Given that it's about two-thirds of that salary, you're looking at a modern-day amount of about $31,000. He says, listen, Jesus, if I had $31,000 in my wallet, that wouldn't buy enough food for all the people here. And indeed, that sounds about right as well. 5,000 men, if we think that there are more women and children there than that, we're looking somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 20,000 people who have been bringing their sick to Jesus. And he looks out and he says, $31,000 for 16,000 people, that's less than $2 a person. You can barely get a taco for that anymore at Taco Bell, right? Like it's not, it's not going to happen. And these are small towns around. In other words, there's no way. There's nothing that we can do. It's not going to do it. John says, Jesus knew full well that was not going to do it, and he asked them anyways. But he asked them to test them. He wanted to test Philip. 
Now, understand when, when it says Jesus wants to test him, Jesus never tests people to watch them fall. Jesus doesn't test people to watch them fall into sin and to break them. We have the beautiful song before the throne of God above, when Satan tempts me to despair. That is, that is the purpose of Satan testing you or tempting you. He wants to tempt you to break you down so that you might despair before God when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. But Jesus never tempts you that way. He never tests you that way. Jesus is always testing you to encourage you and to grow your faith. Sometimes in order to grow your faith, you need to be humbled. And that is certainly what Jesus is doing here. Humility is the first step toward faith and godliness. But sometimes in order to make us fall upon our knees before God, he needs to take out our feet first. So Jesus does that. He looks at them and he says, what can you provide to these people? Philip says, we've got, we've got nothing. Even if we had the money, we wouldn't have nearly enough to be able to feed them. Andrew then helpfully comes by with a boy. Like, I found a boy. I got this little boy and he's got some bread. Listen, five loaves, let's, let's rethink what five loaves might be. When it says five loaves, it means you make up a loaf, but this is more like a personal pan loaf, okay? Biscuit might be a better way to say it. He's got a couple of biscuits of bread. He, it's not like one of those French loaves that your arm can't even hold, right? We're, we're talking like biscuit here and two fish. You wonder what Andrew was even thinking, right? Well, I know 200 denarii is not going to handle it, but I got a boy over here. He's got five small loaves that we could do something with. At least maybe, the, maybe he's thinking the disciples can eat, at least. Who knows what he's, he's thinking? It's such a meager, one wonders what is even possessing him to bring them before Jesus. The fact that John calls this a barley loaf brings up another semi-miracle that's done in the Old Testament in the book of 2 Kings. In 2 Kings 4, 42 through 44, we read this about Elisha. A man came from Baal, Shilashah, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said to his little servant, which is the same word used here for boy, and he said to his servant, give to the man that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? Okay, so that gives you some idea of the size of the loaf. If it's a full loaf of bread, like we think of a loaf of bread, 20 loaves for a hundred men might work, Right? That might happen. You might be able to feed them on that. But 20 smaller loaves, probably not. Elisha repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. That appears to be a miracle. Okay? It's, it's not the same kind of miracle, but that's the whole point. Jesus' miracles are always better. So if you're ever wondering, Jesus' miracles are always better. Clearly, this is not going to work. Bringing, bringing these mounts of loaves here is just not going to happen. Friends, when you read this, you need to understand that this is, this is all of our efforts to do anything in the world amounts to nothing more, nothing more than five barley loaves. And sometimes we don't even bring fish. They are weak and insignificant in face of everything that God has put before us. We have Annie Armstrong coming up where we give money to the North American Mission Board that they might go out and evangelize people in North America. 
we've already done, Lottie Moon, this past year. We gave a tremendous amount of money to Lottie Moon, $3,000 that goes directly to international missions so that those international missionaries might be funded to stay there and to work amongst the people. We've given generously to those things, and they are, in the end, wholly and totally insignificant to the amount of work that has to be done. I cannot stress that enough. Everything that you give daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, and with your entire life is insignificant. It will never be enough. It is nothing but five barley loaves. Nothing but it. Christ has called for us to evangelize the world. He has called for us to send out missionaries, to be people who are on mission, to go out and to evangelize the world so that all might know the greatness of the name of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he has afforded us. As of today, 2,000 years have passed. There are still 3.14 billion people who are unreached. We don't mean by that that they haven't heard the gospel. There are people in Bay City that probably haven't heard the gospel. We mean 3.14 billion people who are unreached, meaning that if they were to have a dream where someone said the word Jesus to them, they would wake up and they would look around in vain for anyone or anything to help them understand what or who Jesus is. There is no Bible that has been translated into their language. There are no churches where they are. There is no history of Christianity where they are. There are no Christians there. There are no evangelical Christians there. There are no Catholics there. There are no one there. No one is there to give them the message of the gospel. They will go throughout their entire lives. They will die and they will have never heard or had access to the name of Jesus Christ. 3.14 billion people. 2,000 languages. 2,000 languages. You know how hard it is to translate the Bible? 2,000 languages have no Bible. If they want to hear the word of God, if they're reached and they want to hear the word of God, they have to have somebody translate it for them because they're reading it in French or they're reading it in English or they're reading it in Hindu. doesn't do it for them because they don't speak those languages. They don't have the Bible in their own languages. How are we going to make a difference? That my kids have this thing with change. They always want change. They always want our change. And we're glad to give it to them because honestly, it's just loose change, right? It's insignificant. So Lucy one day came up. She had a dress on and she found a quarter somewhere and she handed it to me. She said, I want you to hang on to this. Um, I want to give it at church, but, but I don't have any pockets. She was wearing a dress, so she said, you hang on to it. And I thought, okay, well, whatever. Dropped it in my pocket. And I thought, honestly, like, if I forget it, it's not a huge deal. She's going to forget about it, but even if she doesn't, it's insignificant. We're going to give anyway to the church, and, and what we give is so much larger than what, what that quarter is. It, what she gives is meager, right? It's nothing. 25 cents is nothing. Listen, it doesn't matter how much I give, I give 100 200 $300 that month. I give $1,000 that month. I feel really, really giving, and I give several thousand dollars to this church that month or to Lottie Moon or to a missionary. I, I give it directly to missions. In the large scheme of things, in the large scheme of things, the proportion of the need to what I have given is hardly different. We would say statistically insignificant from the giving of a quarter. I've given nothing more than my daughter has. <laughs> 
nothing. Friends, you are unable in any way, shape, or form to give sufficiently to the needs of the people of this world. Even if we wanted to just talk about doing good in the world, the things that you can do are wholly insignificant. Listen, I just finished reading the book Ready Player One. And in the book and the movie, Ready Player One, it is a a book about a competition. And so this recluse video game designer has made the most important and the most uh, well-enjoyed video game of all time. It's basically a separate world that people live in. And the whole world is there now because the world has fallen into complete and total chaos. And so most people live in this world. And he has said, if you solve these puzzles, he's died. And he says, "I've, I've left a huge puzzle for people to solve. And the first person who solves it gets my entire fortune. In the book, that's about $250 billion. In the movie, it's about $500 billion. And the first two people who are, who are kind of making any progress in this at all get together and they talk to one another about what are you going to to do with the money. And the first guy says, I'm building a huge rocket and I'm living in orbit. Okay, fair enough. She chastises him. The second person does and says, if I win that money, I'm going to spend it on the real world. I'm going to spend it helping people in this world and I'm going to do good. I'm going to end hunger. $500 billion is a lot of cash to spend on that. These people were supposed to be geniuses. In order to solve this stuff, there's no way that they couldn't be geniuses. Listen, $500 billion, half a trillion dollars, a lot of money. Divided by every person on the earth, it's $62 per person. That's not buying anything. You've got, at best, if you're just buying cheap rice and no-cost water, a month out of that? Listen, it might be hard news, but you're not changing the world. No amount of gathering together, no amount of writing out checks, no amount of spending all of your life doing it, it's never going to happen. Not only are you not going to change their world, you can't change yours either. What can you give toward your salvation? Our salvation is especially out of our ability to handle Isaac Watts, in the wonderful song, Rock of Ages, wrote this. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? Could I work my whole life for God's glory and never take a break? Could I I'd be so remorseful for my sins that I just wept over them all the time. He says, all for sins could not atone. Friends, all of our efforts are nothing more than five barley loaves. No amount of political agreement that we can gain through diplomacy, no amount of holding hands and folded arms to show our unity, no amount of good works to show our virtue, no amount of giving to the poor, no amount of protest against injustice, no amount of education will be able to solve the problems that this world faces. But, but, while we can't, there is one who can. Second, see the sufficiency of Jesus. Listen to the confidence of this man. He comes with this little boy, five barley loaves, a couple of fish, and he says, okay, all right, just have the people sit down. We'll take care of it, right? He knows they've got no money. He knows they've got 
hardly any supplies at all. And he, he commands them to sit. I, I really want to know what's going through Philip's head when he says, have them sit down, because that is a clear sign that dinner is about to be served. He might as well say, why don't you call them to the table? I think that Philip's probably looking around saying, why should I do this? Can't somebody else do this? I don't want to look like an idiot. But nevertheless, he does it. Now, many scholars, leery of miracles again, think that what happens here is people see this little boy and they see him giving all that he has and so all of a sudden everyone else begins to share and what do you know? There's more than enough if everybody shares. What a bunch of jokers. This is the, the whole point of this is that it's a miracle. The whole point is that there wasn't enough food there. If it's just about everybody sharing, well, not only is there no miracle, but the, the real glory here is not in Jesus, but it's in the boy and more than that, in the people who follow the boy's example. He shared bread. What a joke. It's like the next miracle that happens when Jesus walks on water. Did the water just say, hey, I'll share some of my surface tension with you? Like, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. The whole point of the miracle is that it's a true and actual miracle. It must be a miracle because there's clearly not, not enough food for everybody. And so what Jesus is showing us is that even where our efforts are the most meek, you see, you will always give insufficiently. But Jesus can always take your insufficiency and make it sufficient. He takes it and he multiplies it. This is the whole point of it. Is that what that child brings could never possibly be enough. And Jesus always makes it enough. What do you have need of? Jesus can give it. He is water for your soul. He is healing for your body. He is rest for your burdens. He is everything that you need. He has everything that you could possibly need. It is amazing that he multiplies the bread and the fish. And the text is replete with the idea that people didn't just sort of get some food. They, d- they didn't eat enough so that they could run off to Capernaum to buy the rest of the food that they might need. It wasn't they got some food in their belly so that they would have enough energy so they wouldn't pass out along the way. He didn't give them just enough so that they might survive to the next meal. It says, he handed out the bread. He kept handing it out like a magician pulling loaves of bread out of a hat, just kept going and kept going and kept going until everyone ate their fill. They, they did the whole big Thanksgiving belly rub thing when they were done, right? Like that was, that was a full meal, man. They, they didn't just eat enough to get one cake. They ate as much as they could fit into their mouths. And still at the end of that, 12 baskets left over, clearly symbolizing the fulfillment of all the provision that would be needed for the 12 tribes of Israel. We need to be very careful about how we think through our insufficiency. Let's be clear. Jesus doesn't need you to do anything for him. He is sovereign over all things. He can make food. He can make money. Right? He can can create all new worlds. He can make people into his followers simply by speaking to them in the dead of night. He can awaken anyone from the lethargy of sleep and even from the dead by the sound of power of his voice. He doesn't need us for any of that. And yet here, specifically here, you will notice that Jesus doesn't do anything until the meek provision is given. 
It is not for nothing. Don't hear about the insufficiency of what you do and think that this is either or. Either I give significantly, I can do it myself, I can help and be true and I help, or I don't need to do anything. Neither of those things are true. You can't do it on your own. But Jesus oftentimes refuses to do anything until we act. The, the miracle here, by the way, is not creation. He's not magicking the bread out of nothing. He is multiplying. Multiplication by zero is still zero. There has to be something meager to multiply to make it much. Don't rely upon the fact that Jesus is sovereign and he's able to do things like this as a reason for why you do nothing. As insignificant as that nothing might be, he has called you to do something. And he can make it sufficient. But he has often deemed in his sovereignty to work his sovereignty through the meager means of his people. So we, we, we should always realize that our words are not powerful enough, our unity will never be persuasive enough, our giving will never be rich enough, our preaching certainly is not convicting enough. We will never be enough But that doesn't mean that God doesn't use our limited resources, that God doesn't use our limited abilities in order to make them sufficient for his purpose and his ends. As a matter of fact, God always does that. He has deemed to convert the heathen, not by a mysterious force, but by the words of William Carey going out into the nations. He has deemed to provide unity to his people, not simply through tying them together in the spirit, but by having them work for one another. We continually read in the book of Acts, the spirit comes upon them and they're unified in that. But how, how often are their needs met in the book of Acts? People sell land and they bring it and it's divided. God provides for his people through his people. This is the way it works. Sovereignty does not mean we sit back and we do nothing Sovereignty means that our actions, as insignificant as they are, have real effects. While we give very little, God can do it and use it for very much. Far from being a reason why we give, far from our insufficiency being a reason why we shouldn't give anymore, it is the sufficiency of Jesus why we should give all the more, knowing that he can multiply, he can make it, what it needs to be. So we love people and we love them fiercely. Not because our love changes them, but because we know what Christ can do through that. So we pray often, not because our prayers are efficacious on their own, but because we know the God to whom we pray, who can take our words and work with them. So we proclaim the word faithfully, not because I have the words of life, in myself, not because you have the magic formula for how to convert people to Christianity, but because through your proclamation, people can have their hearts changed by the Spirit of God, making what you have done insufficiently wholly sufficient for his ends and means and purposes. So love fiercely, pray often, proclaim faithfully, and rest in the sufficiency of Jesus to make your insufficiency, your deficiencies, sufficient. But last, a brief warning on the treachery of sinners. 
In verse 14, the people saw the sign that he had done and they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. This seems like it's a very good response because the prophet who is to come into the world was something that Moses talked about back in Deuteronomy 18. In Deuteronomy 18, he says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. This is God talking to Moses. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So they are, they are longing for this prophet to come. And now that Jesus is here and he's done this miracle, they look out at him and they say, this must be the prophet who was supposed to come. This is meant to spark our interest and say, that's a really good response. A really good response. Because what did Jesus and John just get done relaying to us about the people back in Jerusalem? You search the scriptures because you think in them you have salvation. Moses wrote about me. And what are these people saying? This must be the dude Moses wrote about, right? This is the response that the people in Jerusalem were supposed to have. So we should read this as a very, very good thing. And still, not enough. What's the very next verse say? Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. As people looked at Jesus and they said, this must be the prophet. Do you know, do you know what someone who can take a kernel of corn and make it into bushels of corn can do for an economy? Do you know what somebody with this kind of power can do for a nation? Free food equals wealth. Wealth equals power. Power equals freedom. We make him king. We suffer no more. We make him king. Rome cannot stand against us. We make him king. We are free forever. Jesus refuses to let his coronation happen that way. Friends, you must be very, very careful. They are going to make him king. They are going to use force to make him king. They are going to tell him that he has to be sovereign over them, which is a very, very odd thing to do. We command you to be somebody who commands us. So be careful, because you can rightly see God's sovereignty as nothing more than a power to try to exploit by using it for your own ends. You are not a master over his sovereignty. It was a problem with the original fall and it is the same problem today. That we think that we can use God to get what we want out of God. That we can force him and make him because he is gracious to us, do for us what we want. Every need that comes across our minds, every want that we happen to have, we pray for, thinking that Jesus will give them to him. It is not that we are making him king and lord and sovereign so that we will do his bidding, but rather so that he will do ours. He's not the king in that situation, friend, you are. It is the apex of wickedness to take something so gracious and to turn it into nothing more than a stepping stone for your own aggrandizement. To see God's provision to you graciously and, and out, of, out of nothing but good for you and love for you and to take that and say, thanks, that's great. Now you need to do this, 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 and this for me. If you crown Jesus as king only to get what you want, then he is not king, you are. You honestly think that God on high became incarnate, healed people, spoke to people, suffered and died so that you could use him for whatever you want. 
You are treacherous if that is what you think. You make him king so that you might get your bidding. You call him Lord so that you can rule over him. You undercut his sovereignty to make yourself God. It is nothing but treachery. Jesus, he is not your puppet. He is and is alone God on high, very God of very God. He is the sovereign Lord of all creation. He is the one who tells us what we are to do. But because he is good, we listen to him. And yes, we can go to him with all of our prayer requests. We can go to him and ask him for all that we need. But don't ever, ever think that Jesus is bound to do what you ask him to do. Jesus does what is best for you. And that might mean hardship and trouble. And many of you know that. Many of us, though, need to learn that. The treachery of sinners is to take something so good and to turn it into an excuse for wickedness and selfishness. Friends, listen, we are not good enough. We are not smart enough. We're not rich enough. We're not powerful enough. We're not wise enough. We're not noble enough to fulfill the needs that we have ourselves, to fulfill the needs that our neighbors have, to fulfill the needs of the world in ourselves. But we know one who is. Jesus is sufficient for all things. There is nothing as a sovereign Lord over all creation that he cannot do. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And far from being a reason why we should stop doing the things that we do, our insignificance and his sufficiency is the reason why we do them all the more. Because we know that he is sufficient for these things. We know what he can do with little. So imagine what he can do with much. Our insufficiency will not be fruitless, but through the grace and the power of Jesus, they will be multiplied to his glory. So pray, give, proclaim insufficiently that God might change the world. Let us pray. Father, keep us from lethargy on the one side and self-exaltation on the other. Let us work hard with the talents that you have given us knowing that Christ, Christ is the only way that those talents can ever be used sufficiently for your ends so that you might be glorified by the work of your people. Not because you have made us to be gods in and of ourselves. Not because you have made us sufficient in and of ourselves. Father, we will always rely upon you for everything. But because your son and your son alone has the power to resurrect the dead. Your son and your son alone has the power to be able to fill our bellies and our hearts. Your son and your son alone is worthy of the glory that comes from being sufficient. So may we proclaim that sufficiency. May we see it and know it and rejoice with the Jesus who is our Savior and our Lord. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.